0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network Broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Hey Darren, happy Sunday.
4: Happy Sunday to you. How's it going in New York?
3: It's good. It's a bit rainy today. How's it out there in L.A.?
4: Sonny, as always, um, very excited to dig into our annual trend show.
3: Yes, I think this is our seventh or 17th or seven millionth year uh, in a row with Michael Whiteman talking about all things 2018 trends. What are you most excited yeah. about for this year, Darren? Or what are you hoping for?
4: Well, well, you know, the Impossible Burger, I think, is on everybody's lips. And uh, I'm excited to talk about that. But beyond that, what it means to really get to a... Uh, plant-based diet that is sort of a meat substitute. I think the best way that I've really heard about it is that, you know, if you really think about what cows are, that they're just machines for growing protein. So why can't we
3: replace that? Interesting. And I am most excited about how technology is impacting us both from being as lazy as possible for ordering food from the couch and also being able Mm. to pay with your face, which I think is pretty good. And I wonder of us being twins – may have certain implications, to be discussed. To
4: be discussed.
3: So here we go with our 2018 Trend Report on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
0: We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
3: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz.
4: I'm the other half your host Darren Bresnitz.
5: Michael Whitman. Hello. Hello. I loved your in, I loved your introduction and um, I think you guys are so good at what you do that you can do the trends report. I think I think we're only good at reading what you wrote
3: so this is a a happy symbiotic partnership that is I think in its millionth year. <laughs> so let's start with your number 1 prediction of the 2018 food trend plant-based food trends.
5: Okay, well plant-based food trends are not Um, suddenly uh, appearing in 2018. This has been developing for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. It's finally in 2018 that it's going mainstream uh, in supermarkets and in in restaurants around the country.
3: But I think that you point out a really good distinction is that there's a divergent in both restaurants for the older, higher-paying, more well-to-do and supermarkets for the lower-income kind of innovative millennial set.
5: Well... The, uh, there's, there's several divergences. Uh, one is the one you just put your finger on. Uh, the other is that the people who are gravitating now toward plant-based foods in supermarkets, which you see in their own display cases, and usually in the produce section rather than in the, in the meat or the poultry or the fish section, uh, have, are the same people... Who abandoned the idea of processed food fought for years and generations about getting all the chemicals out of processed food, and we should be eating fresh food and unadulterated food. Um, and it suddenly, uh, without realizing it, they're eating highly processed food, even though it's plant-based.
3: Where do you think the I don't want, the logic might be coming from? Where it's you know they're giving up the fact that it's you know eating cows who produce you know a, a huge amount of you know a, additional. Uh, methane, or do you think people care less about that process, and they you feel they like they feel good because it's not killing an animal? Or where
5: do you think that thinking is lining up? Well, where it all began depends on how old you are. Mm. Uh, I I re- I remember <laughs> years ago uh, there were uh, big ads uh, against animal cruelty by the PETA people, uh, and they used as 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 their posters. Uh, pictures of uh, baby seals being clubbed to death in Alaska for everybody so everybody could have a seal coat and uh, and those, those images were really graphic and they took hold uh, and uh, from there you begin to see the emergence of animal rights uh, organizations uh, there was a period when if a woman wore a fur coat on Fifth Avenue she uh, risked uh, having ketchup thrown on it uh, so there was this whole long gestation period about uh, what we do to animals in order to get a hamburger. And uh, it's it's now taken hold, uh, as long-term trends do, and it's taken hold in a big way. Uh, so from, from the outside, it looks like uh, it's happened all at once. But what really happened is that it, it went gradually and gradually and gradually. And then, like going bankrupt, it happens all at once. Mm.
4: Now, you know, part of these big trends, while there's the altruistic, uh, cruelty-free reasons, at the end of the day, for this to really succeed, this is a business. And so, you know, for something like the Impossible Burger or something like that, to really, you know, make it or or make the biggest shift, do you see someone like one of the major fast food corporations having to adopt this and be part of the menu to really, you know, make a huge impact beyond just, a couple of handful of niche restaurants serving this
5: type of product. Uh, if there were just a couple of niche restaurants or a couple of dozen niche restaurants, nothing would happen. Uh, but your point, uh, just to go back for a moment, your point is about it being a business and and not just an issue of uh, animal cruelty relates to the fact that there are lots of other convergent trends uh, that are forcing this change in, in dietary habits, one of which you uh, mentioned before about uh, the, uh, methane producing cow poop. That's, uh, uh, pooped, yes. yep, you know, and, uh, but, uh, and, and the, uh, uh, the effluent that gets run off from feedlots and, and pork farms, uh, which are polluting our streams. So, uh, there's, uh, a confluence of, of all of these issues and, uh, that, that's why it's come together in 2018.
3: Do you think that this trend, now that it's being uh, the confluence, is that where do you see it going? And how do you see it affecting restaurants? Uh, how do you see it affecting diets? Um, how do you see it affecting people self-identifying as vegan, vegetarian, high plant-based diets? Where do you see the tribes forming
5: along these lines? Well, interestingly enough, the restaurants are behind the curve. And most of the changes that we see are taking place in the supermarkets. And, and that's happening for a lot of reasons. Uh, number one, restaurants are uh, ultimately very conservative about preserving their customer base and not turning any customers off. So uh, in this case, which is really a radical shift in diet, uh, restaurants are mm, falling behind the curve in their reluctance to introduce these new kinds of foods. Supermarkets, on the other hand, uh, have lots of space and they have lots of room to put new kinds of products in. So, uh, if you walk down the snack aisles in the supermarket, in the place where you used to see the the greasy potato chips uh, and and the salty taco chips, you now find all kinds of uh, upstart companies, uh, many of them right here in Brooklyn, uh, producing things in uh, beige and brown paper that look like they're uh, whole earth and wholesome. And uh, that idea has spread to uh, whole cases of, as I said before, vegetarian-based foods in in supermarkets. So people have have an introduction there uh, as to what these items are, but they're not making it to restaurants yet. To come back to your point about uh, the Impossible Burger, uh, it's now being adopted by small restaurant chains. It's gone Mm -hmm. beyond uh, a couple of niche restaurants. And... uh, I should tell you that in Scandinavia, I think it's Sweden, uh, McDonald's is serving a uh, veggie burger. Uh, it's 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 soy based and it's technically behind the curve, but you know it's it's McDonald's.
4: Yeah, I mean, when they announced that it was at the end of last year, I think uh, it was sort of recognition that one they are behind in trends. And two, knowing that they uh, have to widen their appeal to keep growing uh, with uh, the mass consumer uh, tasting habits. But beyond the burger, um, which has been the main focus of the product, are we, can we expect to see other types of, you know, will there be uh, impossible steaks, impossible turkey legs, and things like that?
5: There are companies uh, right now that are making lab-grown fish uh, from cells that are taken from fish. Uh, There are companies making lab-grown chicken uh, from cells that have been taken from chicken uh, and lab-grown meat. Uh, We call it in our company uh, uh, meat farms with a pH. Uh, And this is another approach of providing protein uh, to large numbers of people without having to slaughter animals so you can get a hamburger or a book cover. And uh, this is running in parallel with the idea of, of eating plant-based foods. The, uh, the The question arises now is uh, if you don't kill an animal uh, and you grow your meat from cells, uh, is that plant-based or is it animal-based? Uh, there's a big controversy now as to whether it's kosher. Hmm.
3: What's interesting about this is those trends came from the tech world. I don't think that there was any restaurateur that was sitting there and going, hmm, I wonder if I can grow my uh, burger from a cow. It's interesting to see how tech is continually guiding and growing the food sector because as they begin to merge and they begin to overlap. One of the things that you get to see is how Google and Amazon are playing a big guiding force in how people interact with ordering foods, obviously with Amazon buying, buying whole foods, but also how you order the foods itself. It'd be great to talk about how Amazon and the other Google are influencing this and how people are changing their eating habits based on the growing impact of technology on people's lives.
5: Wow. Uh, and how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, tw- 20 seconds. Please. Okay, in 20 seconds or less, um, I I need to uh, remind everybody who's uh, long forgotten that uh, Google tried to buy Impossible Foods, the people who are making the bleeding hamburger, uh, several years ago, uh, because Google and uh, and other companies like them are viewing this as a big technological challenge rather than as an agricultural challenge. The idea being, uh, how do you feed 50 billion people, or whatever the number of people are on Earth, some number like that. Um, how do you feed that many people when there's only a finite amount of arable land and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, just a, a limited amount of methane that you can put into the atmosphere before we all roast to death. So, these are big technological issues that are not Tackled by the food companies. Uh, their food companies are not inclined to do this. Uh, the people who make all the packages of stuff you buy in supermarkets are certainly not inclined to tackle this because it's antagonistic to their very business base. So, who else to do that? Uh, there's money to be made in it, one assumes. And you, if, if you have enough money to invest in it because you're a big tech company and you've made $150 billion in the last couple of years. Um, then these are the guys who are going to do it.
3: One of the other ways that technology has impacted is going cashless, which is something that I've seen creep up. I work around the corner from Sweet Cream. I work around the corner from Dig In and just how they slowly evolved into it. What are some of the benefits of that and what are some of the downsides of that and how does it create a further divide in the have and the have-nots?
5: Yeah, Uh, the benefits are, are fairly clear. Uh, the restaurant pays more for, uh, credit card processing fees, but it's not a lot. Uh, and, uh, it saves on somebody having to run into the bank to get more change to put into the cash registers. Uh, it saves, uh, the problem at the end of the night when a cashier cashes out and there's $2.14 missing and you have to go tracking, finding it. Uh, it saves time, uh at uh, the checkout, which is the big choke point in uh, restaurants like uh, uh, Sweet green or, or, or Starbucks, uh, because all you're doing is swiping the card. It's not like somebody's opening a wallet and looking around for f- three spare pennies in the bottom so they can get exact change. Uh, so that speeds the throughput. Uh, so it's, it's enormously effective. Uh, it also, by the way, allows people to spend more because when you're putting it on your card... You tend to spend more. It's, it's not real money until you get to pay the bill,
3: or you just do auto pay, and then it, it, it's never real. Yeah,
5: it's never real. It's never real. Uh, the the question uh, of uh, equity in this is that the people who uh, most likely do not have a credit card are people who don't like are most likely not to have any money either, and uh, so there's a question of whether we're shutting out uh, a significant portion of the population. Uh, in these restaurants, that in, in increasing num- numbers are going cashless. Uh, for,
3: for restaurants that have gone cashless, have they seen a significant increase in revenues? Based, yes. Really? Yes. Interesting. And just because people are like, "Oh, it doesn't matter. I don't. Oh, I don't just have ten dollars. It's just add things on." Or well,
5: or, well, it's it, it's two. Number one is uh, you tend to spend more on a credit card, but for mm-hmm. the, for the restaurant itself, it allows it allows more customers to go through the restaurant. Uh, in, a, in a Sweet Greens or a Starbucks or any other fast casual format, it allows what we call throughput uh, to be increased so that you're feeding more people in an hour.
4: Now, one of the other trends in technology is seeing a lot of the big tech companies get into the restaurant or restaurant uh, delivery game. So, you know, Snapchat, Facebook, Airbnb, uh, you know, allowing you to make reservations or, or, you know, or working with uh, Grubhub or E24. You know, as the number of players in the game diminishes, how is that going to affect restaurants? And what are restaurants going to have to do to change uh, to get inside the algorithms or to be part of this, you know, lifestyle curated technology approach?
5: The issue of technology is one that uh, you you can't underestimate, uh, and it and it and it's it's a recent invasion into the restaurant industry. But it's not just the restaurant industry; it's the entire uh, hospitality industry because we're looking at uh, companies that are capable now of uh, making a hotel reservation for you, making a restaurant reservation for you, allowing you to prepay if you want to, um, and. Uh, whether it's Airbnb or Google uh, or Amazon, uh, all of these companies are now playing that same game because they're in in the middleman business. They're in the middle between the customer and the uh, the restaurant or the hotel or the car driver for Uber or the car driver for Lyft. Uber has discovered that one of its uh, more profitable sources of income is restaurant delivery. Uh, in my opinion, you're going to see uh, huge mergers of these companies uh, in the near term, uh, and that will diminish, uh, as you just said, uh, the number of companies playing in the field. And that makes it kind of dangerous for restaurants uh, because uh, you know Uber takes a piece, and Grubhub takes a piece, and then Google takes a piece. Uh, it it it, it 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 it's an economic threat to restaurants uh, because restaurants are not um, inherently large enough uh, to do this on their own.
4: You know the the thing that I see with going cashless, booking you know everything online, things like that is that it really becomes about big data and collecting all these data points uh, and being able to forecast those trends and in some ways, and being able to predict. Restaurants, what to sell, and things like that. So how do you see big data affecting small restaurants?
5: You asked me that last year. <laughs> <laughs> so at the risk of repeating myself, no, actually, I've thought about it some more.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's, um, but, you know, and, and the thing is, though, I think last year was just the, uh, it was more of, I don't want to think it's an idea, but now you're seeing it daily. And so much is being collected and so much of this is coming through. I mean, the fact that, you know, to go back to Airbnb, um, you can now say, like, I know how long someone's in this town for, I know how many m- meals they're going to eat at, I know that they're going to spend X amount for breakfast, for that. but then you multiply it by hundreds, thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, and you start to see these big trends add up. So how did, And then how does that trickle down to these businesses?
5: Uh, you, you summarized it very well. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, three or four years ago, the value... Uh, of uh, su- providing these uh, support uh, support services to restaurants had to do with the ability to collect the data. Uh, since then, uh, the development of big data has been able to use all of this information. So um, not only do you have, not only do you have the value of the data itself, but through all the al- algorithms that are being developed, uh, as you pointed out, uh, there's a, an, an enormous amount of economic value being created for these companies. Uh, it's not being created for the individual restaurants.
3: One of the other influences of, of technology that we're seeing more pervasiveness along with big data is uh, face recognition technology. It's Which really... I'm
4: excited about because I'm going to attach your credit card to my face. Well, that's just and you're going to pay for all my meals.
3: That's just that's just fraud. That's just identity theft. It's, uh, again, again, it goes back to this, you know, middle of the line where, and you even talk about in the report, like, most people are okay with it, even if they're not thinking about the larger implications, that you can go into a restaurant, have your face scanned, and your order comes up, and you can pay with it, and you can maybe be out in 20 seconds, but who's capturing the data, how is it being used, and, you know, what are the the larger realities of this type of interaction and ownership uh, and loss of anonymity when going out to
5: eat? As a society, we've seemed to have given up on anonymity uh, and we've given up on privacy uh, all for the sake of convenience. And that's, and that's not going to change. Uh, we, we joked uh, in our report this year about a fellow who walks into a restaurant, really fancy restaurant, taking his wife out for a big deal dinner uh, to a restaurant they'd never been to and uh, he walks in, and via facial recognition, the hostess at the desk knows who he is and when he was last there, and uh, purrs very quietly, oh, Hello, Mr. Jones. Uh, your usual martini tonight? Uh, and there went that marriage. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, there are all kinds of implications uh, about this. For example, uh, if I'm diabetic... And uh, I was sitting uh, and I walked into Roberta's, and they had a facial recognition system that said, Oh, Michael Whiteman's here. Uh, But his medical records say he's got diabetes. Uh, What do we do if this guy orders a pizza? Do we cut him off? Mm. Uh, Is that far fetched? No, that's not far fetched.
4: Um, I think that the best part about the facial recognition beyond just the paying of it, is that it actually, and there's an example in here about a global coffee company, Dewey Egberts, um, that in the airport, if it catches you yawning, uh, it will brew you a cup of coffee. Yeah. And the fact that it's going beyond faces and it's actually tracking mood or movement or interaction is, in some ways, I have to say, the scariest most uh, uh, invasive form of customer service that people
5: may want. Well, you expect your dog to be able to read your mood. Sure. <laughs> um, no, it. look, the Chinese are developing, because this is Big Brother written large, uh, the, Chinese, sure. the Chinese are developing facial recognition systems that are being combined with... Uh, recognition systems that can tell who you are by the way you walk and uh at the same time they are developing a similar similar system uh that can tell who you are by the way you speak and uh if the chinese are going to do it well so can everyone else so uh at some point we're all going to be at the whim of big brother Um, i hope not to be around
3: the other point about Big bro- uh, speaking about Big Brother is and to go back to your, if you're diabetic and you order a pizza, if that data is being tracked, let's say by your healthcare service and they see that you're maybe buying candy bars or you're eating mm. sugary, sugary pizza, that it could potentially affect you and you know, your natural human inclination how realistic is that or, or how, how quickly do you see those kind of possibilities converging if this, if this goes unchecked or you're not careful about opting into the system? But
4: like if you eat three pizzas, they'll raise your insurance rate, your
5: premium. That's right. Well, it, 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 it's about to become very easy, uh, and I, I'll give you an analogous example. Uh, in your new car, uh, the car knows, and the manufacturer knows, and ultimately the insurance company will know uh, how often you speed, and how erratic you drive, if you drive erratically, uh, and uh, whether you've got alcohol on your breath. So uh, this is not far-fetched. It's, all, it's already here in some form, that, and it, it will get adapted to all the things that we've been talking about.
3: We're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to be back with the second half of our 2018 Food Trend Show with Michael Whiteman here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
1: 100 Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. 100 Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate.
3: We are existing in an all time high for the stock market, which has implications globally, but none probably as much fun as the rise of the single dish restaurant. One of my favorite photos, I think in all the years of looking at your transports is from the avocado shop in Amsterdam, which is a it looks like an avocado that was perfectly taken out of the skin halved length uh like horizontally yep. and then a burger stuck inside. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a stunning photo. I can't even I've looked at this photo as reviewed this week. I cannot figure out how to eat it except with a knife and fork. Of course. Or just like I mean it looks like total Instagram bait. No possibility without just getting it everywhere. <laughs> but you're seeing this you're seeing this everywhere. You know, why do people feel that it's a good time to invest in these types of restaurants and what are some other um, forms that they're taking?
5: Well, uh, avocados become, uh, you know, the whipping boy, but uh, there's, there's a lot of this nonsense going around. Uh, I have to say that we have an avocado uh, restaurant, o- avocado-only restaurant here in Brooklyn. Uh, we do. We do over in Industry City on the other side of uh, Brooklyn, and it's called, um, I forget, Avocado World or something like that. <laughs> and. hmm uh, Roseanne gold, my wife and I were just in uh Puerto Rico uh working on uh helping to rebuild a monastery that got uh pretty much destroyed in the hurricane uh but we ran across uh an avocado only place in downtown San Juan uh, so uh it's a disease that's it's a disease that seems to spread uh your your point about the uh, the stock market is is the right one uh because there's so much money sloshing around now, uh, and people making vast amounts of money that, uh, investing in, uh, a a small restaurant is, uh, both ego boosting and, and it's only pocket change to to somebody who's done very well in the market. Um,
3: And are these, are these big square foot restaurants, are these, you know, you know, uh, 200 seats and massive, or these little pop-up shops that, you know, come in. It's a really fun, but it, it's not a huge money, it's not as big of a money pit as people think.
5: How big is your bedroom?
3: Uh, I'm at like 100 square feet. <laughs> there feet. you are. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. Right. Uh,
5: no, there's, there's small places. Uh, there's somebody's wacky idea uh, that might or might not work. Uh, there's a couple of places that do uh, just marshmallows. Uh, there's a restaurant uh, in Amsterdam, I think, or Lisbon, uh, that just does various tartars, steak tartare, turkey tartare, tuna tartare. Uh, there's a fellow who um, who I, I, I respect uh, in terms of his, his judgment and his achievements uh, who recently opened uh, in the Los Angeles uh, Central Market uh, a peanut butter and jelly stand
4: no. Yes no, <laughs> and as yeah, the uh you know that place is always busy, but I won't say that that place is always busy
5: yes, but he 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 uh evidently uh isn't doing this to do a one-off I think he plans to conquer the world with peanut butter and jelly right,
4: you and- know I think that 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 leads to another thing of just these extremely niche, but people just really trying to, um, make food more of a focusing more on the business side of it than the food side of it, especially with social media, Instagram, uh, things like that. And, you know, people are trying to make successes without trying to make something necessarily
3: delicious. But you do have the one in the counter argument for people saying, this sounds crazy, you do mention the meatball shop and Yang's Braised Chicken, and, and am I right in saying they said there's six thousand franchises it's around the world? That yes. is, I mean, that is, I thought I thought that was either and, and, insane and he, or a typo. No, it's just insane. no,
5: but, uh, this is Yang's Fried Chicken, uh, and it's from China, and uh, he has six thousand franchises around the world, uh, and he only sends, well, only sells one thing: it's, it's chicken and rice, uh, hmm. with with uh, quote unquote a secret sauce, which. He, uh, I think it was passed to him uh, in his mother's birth canal. Because, what do you think the secret sauce is? Uh, I don't. Know, it's, it's the same as everybody else's secret sauce. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but we have so, a, we have know. we have a cream cheese restaurant here in the East
3: Village, which you would think that that would be yeah. in Philadelphia, just out of like a good launching <laughs> pad. But maybe they're maybe they're workshopping it here in New York, and then they'll they'll go to Philadelphia when they feel they can pass <laughs> yeah, but, I was it. I would say pass the mustard, but it's really just pass the cream cheese.
5: <laughs>
4: Um, now, speaking of uh, global flavors that are being exported around the world, um, there's a few uh, next-wave cuisines that are, are, are starting to pop up that everyone usually be falling in love with. And I want to touch on some of them, but the first one is Filipino cuisine. Because um, we here at Snacky Toons are, are a huge fan of the guys down at uh, Lhasa um, in downtown Los Angeles who are doing this amazing Filipino restaurant. Right. But, you know, what is it about... Filipino cuisine, and then also uh, Indian fast casual and upscale Korean that are starting to really dominate uh, the major flavor profiles that people are seeking.
5: Okay, one of the big factors behind it um, is food writers uh, because they're always looking for something new to write about. Uh, And uh, the food press is really responsible for a lot of uh, good and bad uh, dining trends in this country, but going beyond that, uh, it 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 goes back to what we was talking about earlier uh, when we were discussing uh, plant based cuisine and how it it smoldered and, and smoldered and took generations for it to happen, and then suddenly it seemed to happen all at once. Uh, we have had huge numbers of Philippine uh, immigration to the United States. Uh, And we see them largely in in, uh, the service industries like hospitals and and hotels. And by the way, this is true around the world. If you go to Dubai, it's the same thing. Uh, Vast numbers of of Philippines have left the islands uh, and uh, end up supporting the islands by uh, sending money back. And they tend to live in, uh, as we all did when our parents and grandparents came, they tend to live in, in their own enclaves and cook for themselves until at some point uh, they spill beyond the boundaries of where they originally settled in the country, and their food over spills out over the uh, the boundaries. As happened with Japanese food, Chinese food, Mexican food. It's something you see time and time again. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So now we have uh, a critical mass. You should pardon the expression of, of of Filipinos in in this country, and we're also at a time when we're looking for new things to eat especially things that have high flavor profiles. So uh, in Philippine cuisine, we're looking at something that's got uh, fairly heavy spicing. And we're also looking at a cuisine that has uh, a large level of acidity to it, uh, usually coming from uh, citrus fruits. So, uh, you know, that lights your mouth up. Do you think after
3: waves and waves of the rise of New American and comfort food which you've talked about over the years people's senses have just gotten dull and it's re- repetitive and now they're looking for just something exciting new invigorating
5: it, it's partly that uh, I think as, as a country uh, after World War II until mm, maybe 15-20 years ago uh, American food as we defined it uh, was reasonably bland uh, and and uh, The people who have been moving into this country since, say, the Vietnam War uh, have been people who come from hot countries where they grow palm trees and chili peppers. And so we've had an introduction into this country over the last 30 or 40 years of highly spiced, high-flavor-profile cuisines. And uh, a new generation of Americans says, wow, hey, my oatmeal didn't taste like that. Uh, so uh, we've become uh, collectively a nation of pepperheads. Uh, and uh, that's why we're, we're now latching on to uh,
3: Korean cuisine, for example. And I think it's all to move past, and I go speak from my experience, spice for spices' sake, and now how spice can be... Woven into addition layered in as an ingredient, not just how how hot can something be?
5: the The issue is, uh, you know, we all started out um, doing exactly what you said. Let's see, how, let's see how, what what our pain threshold is. Uh, but if you, if you go back to the countries where uh, these spices are used, you find generally that they're parts of spice blends. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, for example, uh, if you look at what's being served in Lebanon or Israel, uh, or or any of the countries in the Levant, uh, you'll find that they're really blends of of spices, uh, as is "quote unquote" curry powder, uh, which is doesn't exist as a, as an item by itself, but as a blend of spices. So, uh, we've gone from pure heat to uh, uh, a search of in, in flavor and fragrance. And, and that's really the discovery.
4: Um, before we get into the lightning round, I want to touch on one last subject that we've come back to year after year, and that is the growth and evolution of fast casual, which has now become a staple and really um, what seems to be seem one of the strongest growth uh, types of restaurants in America, and it even goes back to you know, these one-off shops of people who are trying to be like, you know, I have my fine dining spot, but then I have my peanut butter and jelly restaurant. So I'd love to hear about some of the trends that have uh, been growing in Fast Casual and, and what we can help to see from them from next year and what they're offering in the matter of convenience and flavor and uh, how they're going to differentiate themselves from each other.
5: In the last five years or so, the only real growth in the restaurant business has been the fast casual end of the business, uh, which is uh, you know, the sweet greens and the chopped and the uh, and various other ethnic uh, fine casual fast casual restaurants that that have opened. Uh, in the last year, uh, the people who write about this from an economic point of view have pointed out that. Uh, the sales per restaurant in the fast casual sector seem to have leveled off or even dribbled down a little bit, um, which doesn't concern me at all because more and more restaurants are entering into the fast casual business. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we're having a, a, a bit of a difficulty getting uh, getting them all absorbed into the culture. Uh, but because uh, sales have leveled off, uh, the fast casual industry is now looking at uh, stealing a piece of business from uh, the fast food business uh, by adding things like kiosks uh, where you pay in advance and you don't have to talk to a server and you pick up your food, and uh, and, and it's far more efficient that way. Uh, they're talking about adding uh, drive-thrus, uh, in, in which case you miss the entire fast casual experience because you never see the food, uh, Mike question to myself is uh someday what's going to happen to the drive through when we get self-driving cars mm. Uh, mm. uh and at the, at the other end they're uh trying to capture uh people from uh the next gen next level of, uh, of economy up in uh, from the casual restaurant business by adding much better decor much better lighting uh serving food that stays in the restaurant uh on uh China or, or real uh, with real forks and spoons uh, and even having them delivered by waiters so uh, the the fast casual business uh, is fairly new it's only been around for about 15 years and it's 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 evolving uh, and where would we' all end up as uh, I don't know
3: <laughs> is it do you feel that it's now getting closer to its equilibrium where it went so far in one direction or so far because what you just described, I don't want to ruin any surprises. It sounds like a restaurant. So, do you think that it's swinging a little bit back because certain things were being missed, or people felt that they weren't getting the right amount—they weren't getting the right amount of value for what they were doing? Or why do you think it's—it's it's coming back towards a more traditional setup?
5: Well, let's let's go back to why fast casual became such a success. Uh, you, you went to a fast casual restaurant because you didn't want to go to a fast food restaurant. Uh, you went to a fast casual restaurant because you could see the food. You could see the food made in front of you. You could talk to the server, uh, which is the antithesis of McDonald's, where you talk to a package. Uh, So there was a a sense of personalization here. Uh, You could uh, modify your food just by talking to the server. Uh, You got the sense that it was fresher. Uh, And you were willing to pay more for it. you also went to a fast, casual restaurant because you were tired of going to uh, all the look-alike casual restaurants that specialized in fried mozzarella sticks and that kind of stuff. Uh, because, again, you knew you were getting highly processed food, whereas you go to a fast, casual place and it's, it's all fresh and it's done in front of you. So that, that's an enormous creation of value uh, for two groups of people, those who were spending more and now willing to trade down to get better food for less money. And people who are trading up uh, and willing to spend more money and more time uh, in order to get that food. Uh, the big victims of this, I think, are the casual restaurants. Uh, the, and they fall into the category of things like uh, Olive Garden, uh, Bennigan's, TGI Fridays, uh, and a uh, hundred other look-alike chains. Uh, who are seeing their customers leached away uh, to fast casual?
3: Do you think anyone is shedding a tear for the shuttering of a Bennigan's
5: or Olive Garden? <laughs> uh, they have a, lo- a, a lot. A lot. A lot of people eat at Olive Garden every day.
2: <laughs>
4: okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I think maybe the different question might be: Is are any of the casual restaurants starting to get a cue from casual, fast casual? to improve their own business.
5: No, they haven't figured out how. Uh, And and by the way, this is uh, not confined to the restaurant end of the world. Uh, The big lumbering companies, whether they be retail chains like Sears Roebuck, uh, or whether they be uh, uh, the uh, uh, casual restaurants we just talked about, uh, or whether they be General Mills or Kraft, uh, they have been unable to innovate in a meaningful way to create enough of a change in their business to change the business structure itself. Uh, so they're stuck with, with the legacy business. And that's why you see companies like Kraft and General Mills uh, and and uh, all of the other people who uh, whose brands you recognize in the supermarket are running around acquiring startup companies. Uh, you know, if you want to make a lot of money, invent a new a, a new dish, put it in a, in a fancy package or an eye-catching package, get social media to uh, uh, move it around the, the internet, and uh, poof, somebody will buy you for a lot of money.
3: And that goes back to Darren's earlier point about when the larger corporations get into the game, how they can affect food trends, whether, whether it's for good or for bad, remains to be seen.
5: Well, uh There's a, there's a war being fought uh, between Amazon and Walmart. Uh, and uh, it all has to do with technology and the ability to move goods around the country and around the world efficiently. Um, Amazon has uh, so far had, had the edge. Uh, Walmart is catching up. But the upshot is going to be, whether it's Walmart, Amazon, Google, which just opened the first cashless uh, checkoutless uh grocery store in, in, in Seattle. Uh, all of these are going to have severe impact on uh, these legacy businesses that we've been talking about, including mom and pop down the road.
4: Uh, and if anyone wants to hear an incredible story about the length of which uh, Amazon and Walmart are going to, there's a Great Planet Money episode that involves a, I believe it's a fruit punch pickle uh, and how that is a major key in winning the war. Um, I have to say that in the upcoming trends and buzzwords of 2018, I do not see uh, iced tea pickles in your list of things that we should be excited about.
5: Damn! I knew there was something you always miss one. <laughs> I
4: know. I mean, I mean. Look, you know, we'll look back, and you're, you know, you normally bat a thousand, but uh, I guess history will tell.
5: Well, you know, I I bet you can get an investor for that. (laughs) (laughs) What are the trends Um, that we?
4: let's get into some of our favorite uh, buzzwords and trends of what's going to be popping up in 2018.
3: And one of the ones that we uh, are most excited about. Yeah, kick it off, Greg. Yeah, one of the ones we're most excited about is onion soup as a flavoring agent. Oh, growing (laughs) up, our favorite dish that my mom made was this chicken that she refused to tell us what it was. Uh, Because she cooked everything from scratch and everything was made, you know, greens and veggies. And one day we got her to break down the recipe and it was from uh, a 1950s cookbook. It was um, a jar of apricot preserves, um, a bottle of French dressing, and then Lipton onion soup for flavoring. So for the last 30 plus years, we have definitely had onion soup as a flavoring. So we think that we've been infinitely ahead of the curve, thanks to mom. (laughs) But why is this... Why is the rest of the world finally catching up to this?
5: You know, I, I, a late aunt of mine had a recipe like that, but she didn't have the orange marmalade.
3: Uh, it's uh, it, was, it, it was
5: apricot. 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 Well, oh, she didn't have that either. Yeah. Uh, we've been seeing... Well, look, let's summarize it in a, in a quick one. Uh, it's an easy fix. Uh, you can open a package of dehydrated onion soup. You can mix it with mayonnaise and smear it onto a hamburger and it will be very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you can make your own aioli and and uh, imitate the flavors by if you're a great chef of uh, charring shallots and dehydrating them <laughs> and, uh, and, and making the equivalent and it'll taste even better. Uh, but the answer is it's, it's an easy fix and we're seeing a lot of chefs around the country uh, picking up on it.
4: Now, as far as uh, superfoods go, we are going beyond uh, traditional farming on ground and looking into the ocean. And seaweed and algae uh, are starting to pop up into juices and other uh, unexpected places. Why is
5: that? Uh, Number one, because we've rape the land so much that (laughs) that we can't grow anymore. Uh, uh, Seaweed is uh, very high in protein. Uh, We've been eating a lot of seaweed without our knowing it uh, because seaweed is used as a stabilizer in a lot of food. Uh, I believe carrageenan, if you see it on the label, is a a derivative of seaweed. And if I'm I'm wrong, then something else is. Uh, And So we're looking at uh, something that you can almost say we can have for nothing because there's a lot of it out there. All you have to do is harvest it, if you know how, and process it, if you know how. Uh, And uh, so this is a a business venture uh, that's attracting a lot of capital investment because uh, there's great value in stuff
3: that we thought was junk. This also plays into another buzzword of blended burgers, of finding vegetables and soy to cut down on meat consumption.
5: Correct. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the big item that goes into uh, hamburgers uh, is mushrooms. And uh, there's a competition every year that's uh, run by the uh, Culinary Institute of America and sponsored by, uh, guess who, the Mushroom Council. uh, uh to see uh, who can do the most creative job of uh, cutting the amount of fat and meat in a hamburger uh, and substituting uh, mushrooms. Uh, Google, in its employee cafeterias, has been doing just that. Uh, and I think, I could be wrong, I think they are now up to a hamburger, which they've gotten to by evolution, uh, that it maybe is 80% mushrooms and and. meat. And Google, by the way, uh, has been at the forefront of uh, trying to improve the diets uh, of the way their employees eat. Uh, They spend vast amounts of time and money uh, doing research on their own employees uh, who aren't paying for this, by the way, uh, because you eat free at Google. but they've moved large numbers of, uh, of employees from uh, meat-based uh, dining to uh, plant-based dining. Not no, 100% and not every day, uh, but the trend is there.
4: Uh, one of the uh, trends on there that I, I had to pause was cheese tea from Taiwan, which I'm hoping it is not exactly what it sounds like.
5: Oh, I'm afraid it is. Uh, so let's. So what go, is cheese tea? Let's go back to Philadelphia. <laughs> okay. Um, if uh, if you were in Flushing today, Flushing being uh, the Asian district of uh, uh, New York City, uh, and if you were uh, in Taiwan and and several other cities, by the way, where you know, there are large Chinese populations. Uh, You can get tea, both hot or cold, and on top of it is a froth of whipped up, uh, fundamentally, uh, Philadelphia cream cheese and salt. Uh, Mm. And and the cream cheese is uh, cold, and uh, the interesting thing is you have this hot tea underneath this uh, froth of, of cold cream cheese, and uh, if you're a connoisseur, you do not drink this with a straw. You drink it out of the glass, so you get a little bit of the top and a little bit of the bottom at the same time, and mm. it becomes, oh, becomes a, new, a new flavor sensation. And I bet yes. you, I'll bet you can find it S- in L.A.
4: <laughs> I'm sure. Sensation is like a strong word for that one, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I,
5: I, I, saw, I saw a giant billboard uh, in Flushing uh, a couple of months ago uh with uh telling you where uh two blocks away you could get cheese tea. So hang on it's no, coming. Maybe, hang
2: on, it's maybe, coming.
4: Maybe I try it, maybe I'm proven wrong.
3: You never know. I mean it's it's not like it's uh it's not like it's Opal. It's just cheese and tea, so you're not it's not that far out. You've had you've had worse things um on a plate. Yes, that's probably true. But not today. But not today. Uh, Not on th- today. On the more common lists uh, on here, on this list, cotton candy, but no qualifier, just cotton candy. Why is that going to be big in 2018?
5: Uh, we're seeing cotton candy uh, taking off uh, primarily in London, uh, where it's become a uh, a distinguisher uh, for uh, run of the mill desserts, uh, and so we're seeing ice cream. Uh, Takeaway ice cream uh, in a cone with a, a big fluff of uh, of cotton candy on it. Uh, we're seeing yogurt with cotton candy on it, uh, and uh, it's really wacky stuff because it sticks to your clothes and it sticks to your beard. Uh, but uh, people seem to love it because it's uh, another wacky thing to do, uh, and in a way, it all goes back to the old Four Seasons restaurant in New York, where if you were a kid. Uh, when, the, when the meal was over and the adults had their desserts, uh, they gave you a little bowl of ice cream under a foot-tall uh, fluff of, uh, of cotton candy, which they made in the, in the kitchen. Uh, so here we are again. Nothing is new.
4: Um, but I, I want to end on one thing that seems to be very new and it ties back to our earlier conversation today about technology, and that's robots in the kitchen, dining rooms, Running over your feet. Now I know that we have the Roomba to help with the spilled food, but are there going to be robots or anything that's going to help prepare
5: the food? Well, there are robots, uh, and you know in the home v- kitchen. No, yet, yet. Yes. Uh, but uh, robots are being developed to do everything that low, uh, low-skilled labor uh, once did. Uh, and especially in the food industry where you see rising minimum wages and the food industry is a minimum wage industry, Uh, at some point it becomes uh, economically logical to replace people with with robots. Uh, To get to the uh, the home uh, issue that you just raised, uh, as we get older and as uh, more of us get older, Uh, And as caregiving becomes a major expense, which it already has, if you have an older parent, uh, then you could see uh, robots in your home kitchen, uh, fetching food from uh, a, a compatible freezer and heating it up for you and delivering it to you.
3: And never, ever getting up. And then you can call Alexa to get your pizza and you can show your face and get your Chinese food order. And then hopefully you never, ever have to move and everything will be brought to you in your small 10-square-foot area. (laughs) Well, Mike, we want to make sure that we get in one last question before we go. We talked a lot today. What are you most excited about? What should we keep our eye on as a professional who's been doing this for many, many years that we did not touch on yet?
5: Oh, I'm excited about what my wife is going to make for dinner. Always. (laughs) Always. <laughs> Always. I'm excited to uh, eat this last piece of pizza that we're having here at Roberta's. Forever. Forever. Um, you know, ask me that again next January. Let's see if I was right.
3: <laughs> Fair enough. Well, where can people find the report? Um, where can they get past your to see how accurate you are?
5: Uh, they can go to uh, www.baumwhiteman.com. Uh, and they'll find it there, uh, or they can just Google Michael Whiteman and Trends, and uh, 400,000 citations will pop up. Perfect. Well, Michael, thank you for you coming know,
3: back. Sir. We love this tradition. It's uh, one of our favorite shows of the year, hands down. Darren, good to hear you as always. Uh,
4: yes, thank you guys for uh, taking the time. Super excited to try them that yeah, T- and Darren, uh, uh, looks- very soon.
5: Darren, Darren, look for some bubble tea in LA. You'll find it. We'll find it. Well, thanks. Oh, for, yeah. I mean I mean cheese tea. I meant cheese tea. Well, thank
3: you so much for listening. <laughs> um, we are going to be back next week with an all-new episode of Snacky Tunes. Take care and be safe.
0: We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.